Those of you that have heard clinical conundrums before, basically these are patients or patient tales about patients that are very difficult to diagnose. And um, typically there's a point that you need to um, consider. This patient is a 35-year-old right-handed Caucasian female with a history of neurological abnormalities for two years, two months, two months. She was diagnosed by one doctor as having TIAs, transient ischemic attacks. Uh, at issue, though, there is no cause that was given, number one. Number two, nobody could tell if they were real or not. Number three, old records within the last two months indicated that she was faking, that this was not real. The patient was sent to see me secondary to complaints of constant chronic headache. I took a history, and she and her husband described over a dozen instances in two months that were specifically neurological, including aphasia, hemiplegia, paraplegia, unilateral blindness, and more. Now, one of the issues was they'd been married for six months, and the husband was overly solicitous. So the first thing in your mind is what? It is hmm, secondary gain issues, maybe? So after we took a history, after I took a history, when she was taken into the exam room by my nurse, put in a gown, I went in to examine her with her husband. Her husband was in there. And I started to examine her. Gait and station was fine. Cranial nerves were fine. Then I started doing strength testing. And as I was doing the strength testing, she, I mean, good, you know, good, good muscle tone. Until I used her left, it was good. Then all of a sudden, it broke. Okay. And she developed a parasis right before my eyes, a left upper extremity. So um, this was not a good thing. But the question was, was it real? So we got her. She got, I left. She got dressed, came back to my exam room, and I checked her again in the exam room and said, you know, I think that we need to hospitalize you. Um, she said that it wouldn't matter because it always lasted 18 to 24 hours, then she'd be fine. The issue was, however, in terms of the headaches that she was sent to see me for, uh, there's some evidence she had trap and deltoid spasm, and if she becomes paretic, those muscles are going to get tight holding that arm up, okay? So it's not like this. So I could not make a diagnosis of her headache. I told the patient I really wanted to hospitalize her. She and her husband fought it. I said, um, if she wanted to continue to see me, she had to be in the hospital because I wouldn't see her outside of the hospital. Now, this was in 1983, okay? I have a bunch of old charts of, of these patients. There were no MRI scans in hospitals in 1983. There were CAT scans. In this hospital, which was in the San Fernando Valley of California, there was a CAT scan that was there for two years. Did we know anything really about it? Not much. But it was brand new. It was top-of-the-line diagnostic medicine and neurology, and it was expensive as hell to get a CAT scan. 
I'm sure you all remember those days. Okay. Now a CAT scan's a hundred bucks, maybe two hundred. Back then it was over a thousand. So this hospital had a CAT scan for two years. So I'm sitting there thinking, this is what I want to do. I wanted to get a CAT scan or maybe something else, but let's see. So the first thing I called her insurance. Now, who would have thunk that there would be a problem with medical insurance? Anybody here would have doubt that medical insurance would be an issue? A CAT scan, as I said, they were new, very expensive. Patient, I thought, needed a CAT scan. But her insurance said she couldn't have one unless she had had one before. They would pay for a follow-up scan, even though it was just as expensive as an initial scan, but they wouldn't pay for an initial scan. Don't ask me why. It made no sense. We, I spoke to them. We went round and round, and I was told I had to talk to the medical director who was away for two days. So I had to wait two days to talk to this guy. Okay. So this was the catch-22, which we'll get to defining in a moment. I wanted the patient to be admitted to the hospital. The way I left the call, I would talk to this guy. The insurance had no issue at all back in 83 with hospitalizing a patient. So I had her admitted, but I couldn't do a CAT scan. A catch-22, here's two definitions from two dictionaries. One, a situation in which there are only two possibilities, and you cannot do either because each depends on doing the other first. Okay? Another one. The other definition, a problematic situation for which the only solution is denied by a circumstance inherent in the problem or by a rule. In this case, it was a rule. We don't pay for initial CAT scans, only follow-up CAT scans. So if she's never had a follow-up CAT scan, we're not. If she hasn't had an initial CAT scan, we're not going to pay for a follow-up. So that was the catch-22 this patient fell into. Again, she couldn't have a CAT scan because she'd never had one before. So the patient's left upper extremity weakness was gone by 8 o'clock that night. It's a good thing. I still had to speak to the insurance company's medical director two days. The next morning, when I went in to do rounds, she woke up and she had a homonymous hemianopia. Okay. Those neurologists in the group, you know, you know, tell me when you see the your finger and oh, there it is over there. Right side blind. I called the insurance company back, raised some hell, and absolutely nothing was accomplished. So I thought about it and said, you know, here's a patient, she's had two neurological issues so far in my perusal. So maybe there's something else we can do because I'm tired of fighting. I need to get a diagnosis. So I met with the chairman of the Department of Neuroradiology and I told him I wanted him to do a cerebral angiogram. Okay. And he said, no, the CAT scan would be better. And I explained the issue and he said, call the guy. I'm sure you'll work it out. Okay. So mid-afternoon that day, that was 
morning rounds. Mid-afternoon, I was seeing patients in my office. I get a call from the floor nurse. Her hemianopsia had gone away. That's a good thing. The bad thing was she now had a right-sided hemiplegia. And that, you know, is neurologically speaking an oh-my-God type of situation. So I immediately left my office, went to the hospital, and examined the patient. And either she was the world's greatest medical actress or she had a real uh, hemiplegia. So that's three transient neurological events that I personally witnessed and I saw and examined. I had to figure out what was going on because, let's see, three neurological issues, three TIAs in 24 hours or 48 hours, that's not a good thing. So I went to speak again to the chairman of neuroradiology who repeated himself that he would not do a cerebral angiogram. Didn't matter what I said. I told him that I thought there was something going on that we could only find via angiography. He essentially told me I didn't have a clue as to what I was talking about because he's the chairman of his department. I've been in the hospital for two years, and I was three years out of residency. So, yeah, I was a little pisher, and he's the chairman of the uh, department. But I told him he needed to do the test, and if he wouldn't, and if the patient ended up having a CVA, a stroke, not a TIA, I would see him in the hospital department, and I would not be happy. Boy, was I an idiot. Okay, you don't talk like that, but I did. I was a new physician. I was pressuring an older guy. Chairman of a department, this is what I want you to do. If I was wrong, I probably could have been thrown out of the hospital thrown off staff, and as you all know, that is not something that any of us want to do, okay? Begrudgingly at that point, after I pseudo-threatened him, the physician agreed to do the cerebral angiogram. I was in attendance at the test, okay? She had multiple issues within a short period of time. Unusual, to say the least. They were all from different parts of the CNS. Right hemiplegia, left paresis, hemianopsia on the right. Okay. During my residency at Northwestern, we had a CAT scan, but nobody had ever diagnosed what I thought was going on. I wanted to look for a vasculitis. What do you do to look for a vasculitis? For a small vessel? you need to do a cerebral angiogram. Basically, what you see with a CAT scan is hypodensities. Okay, so it's not really diagnostic. So, what is the diagnosis for this patient? Okay. Primary angiitis or vasculitis of the CNS. And if you look at this... You can see beading. Let's see. Is this working? Nope, this is not working. So you you may turn this on. Yes. Okay. You can see beading up and down the area. Here you can see enlargement of blood vessel. You can see constriction of blood vessel. This was the exact picture of a cerebral vasculitis. This is what it was. Now, 
it turned out to be a primary angiitis. And we'll talk about that. Because primary angiitis, this, again, this is 1983. This is not something a lot of people knew about. So let's talk about that. In a peer review of, or a review of 68 patients with a pathological diagnosis with a different series, the most common symptoms were non-focal, typically headache in 58%, altered mental status in about 50%, 47%. Localized symptoms were frequent. Okay, Seizures could be a presenting symptom. A primary vasculitis that's limited to the CNS is rare. As we'll discuss a little further down, typically, if you have a CNS vasculitis, there are vascular, vasculitic-type changes throughout the body. The disease, a disease, is called granulomatous angiitis of the CNS, and it remained a rare diagnostic entity until the 1980s. There had only been something like 46 or 50 publications about this diagnosis at that time. It was first described in the mid-50s. In 86, 46 cases reported. Since 75, they had an increasing number of cases described and over 500 cases reported through 2007 in the English literature, the English literature. Primary angiitis of the CNS affects patients of all ages. It peaks typically around 50 years of age. Um, it's most common in males. However, certain other types of vasculitides we'll talk about are more common in females. Retrospective analysis of 101 cases showed an incidence of uh, primary angiitis of the CNS of 2.4 cases in a million life years. Today, it's still un uh, uncommon. It's something you want to consider in a patient that has nothing else going on that you can find but multiple neurological events. The initial event, whatever primes the inflammatory cells, what causes this? Nobody knows, okay, to this day. The final common pathway of inflammation leads to occlusion of the involved blood vessels, you can then get thrombosis and then ischemia and therefore necrosis of the involved areas. If it's in the CNS, it's a stroke. If it's not, it could be in the kidney, it can be cardiac. I don't have to tell you what that would cause. Limited data suggests an association with a systemic viral illness or a state of altered host defense, along with the primary angiitis of the CNS. Duna and his group looked at 168 cases and found that 29 were associated with an illness characterized by an immunosuppressant state. That's all he had. The course of illness is variable. In patients with the disease variant of the granulomatosis, uh, Basically, it's characterized by a presentation of chronic meningitis and a small vessel distribution. Signs or symptoms can precede the diagnosis by up to three years. Which brings up a question, why didn't I do an LP immediately on that patient? The answer was, I wanted to see the results 
of a CAT scan because I had had in my residency training, the chief resident uh, did an LP without getting a picture first. The patient herniated, had a tumor, herniated. So I was a little bit more careful back then about when I wanted to do an LP. Most common symptoms, headache, followed by neurological deficits. Headache varies in, in description. It's usually chronic and insidious. It's more tension type than migraineous. Other symptoms include cognitive impairment, stroke, and TIAs. TIAs are found in 30 to 50% of the patients, so this woman fits right into there. Strokes are usually multiple and vary in age. Those are patients that don't have TIAs. They have multiple small strokes, almost like lacunar infarcts. Cranial nerves can be affected. In addition to myelopathy, patients can have seizures and ataxia. Now, here's the clinical features of primary angiitis of the CNS. Headaches, encephalopathy, strokes, or TIAs. Seizures, behavioral changes. Focal motor or sensory abnormalities, ataxia, cranial neuropathies, visual changes, myelopathy, and even radiculopathy. So there's a very wide di differential diagnosis. So my only comment here is that primary angiitis of the CNS is something to think about, but it's not your first thought. The most common scenarios, multiple cerebral ischemia, episodes affecting different vascular territories in association with an inflammatory type pattern in the, CNA, in the cerebral spinal fluid, subacute or chronic headache with cognitive impairment, and chronic meningitis, aseptic or not. Patient, my patient only had A. Now, let's talk about the diagnosis of CNS vasculitis, okay, in general. Okay, it's secured by typically a biopsy and good uh, cerebral angiography. In my opinion, except for an MRI or an angiogram, an MRA, okay, the only way to do this is with a cerebral angiogram. You need to exclude other conditions. That's the issue. And I'll tell you about that in a moment. But here's some. Systemic vasculitides, systemic vasculitides encompassing more than just the CNS. Connective tissue disorders, polyarteritis nodosa, allergic granulomatosis, vasculitis with connective tissue, Henoch-Schonlein purper, and there's a whole list as you can see. And you can look at this in another way. The size of the blood vessel. In the C, uh, CNS or vasculitides that affect the CNS, the large vessel affecting vasculitides include Takayasu's arteritis, which by itself does not hit the CNS, as well as giant cell arteritis. Giant cell arteritis, of course, is right here and internal. Affecting medium blood vessels, polyarteritis nodosa. Kawasaki's disease. So these are other pieces of that differential. Small blood vessels, IgA arteritis, 
microscopic polyangiography, polyarteron, pardon me, granulomatosis with polyangiitis, eosinophilic granulomatosis. But then you have two, Kogan and Bechet's, which can affect large, medium, and small blood vessels. Then you have types of vasculitides associated with systemic diseases. Lupus is the first. You all know that lupus is most commonly associated with cerebrovasculitis. And, of course, the butterfly rash, and, of course, the other aspects of the connective tissue disorder. Um, Rheumatoid arthritis, another one. Uh, Scleroderma, Sjogren's syndrome, APLA syndrome, APLA, antiphospholipid antibodies in thrombocytopenic purpura. Okay, that's associated with HIV. And then you have other types of vasculitides that are associated with other things, such as tumors, neoplasms, okay, radiation-induced, drug-induced, and lastly, infection-induced. These are things that you want to look out for. But these are part of, or should be part of your differential diagnosis. Typically, Wegener's or cases with granulomatosis pathological findings have a very lethal course. Patients are treated now with uh, cyclophosphamide or methotrexate and glucocorticoids, prednisone typically. Originally, cyclophosphamide treatment was given for up to a year after remission. Now it's three to six months, and then they follow with MRAs. More recently, small treatment of small vessel vasculitides. The goal is to limit exposure of the alkal, uh, the alkylating type of drugs. So you want to use oral cyclophosphamide again, three to six months. Start with a big dose of prednisone and wean down over its eight to 12 weeks. Initially, again, your pulse steroid. Um, steroid alone for cases that don't have a large burden of disease. Okay, so for primary, that would be something you'd consider. So let's finish up quickly. Primary vasculitis limited to the CNS, referred to as primary angiitis of the CNS, is one of the most formidable diagnoses because you have such a long differential diagnosis you have to get rid of, okay? Have to disprove all of it. Correct diagnosis requires a very high degree of suspicion. Primary angiitis of the CNS is rare, but it's increasingly recognized. Biopsy is a very good alternative, but I personally don't like brain biopsies on patients, particularly with a vasculitis, because they can recover. Primary angiitis of the CNS is best approached with a team, something I didn't have back then. It was just me. But right now, you want neurovascular people, immunological or rheumatological folk, neuroradiology and neuropathology folk, all are needed to do the best job to treat a patient with PACNS. Now, there is another syndrome that mimics 
primary angiitis of the CNS, and that's called reversible cerebrovasoconstriction syndrome. It does everything that we talked about before, creates a picture of TIAs, but it is not a vasculitis. So getting back to the patient, after the test was done, I had to see another patient and went back to see her, and as I was walking into the room, I heard the chairman of neuroradiology tell her that I had essentially forced him to do the test, but he had doubted that I, they would have had a diagnosis with a CAT scan and that I was a good doc. Wow. Okay. As I entered the room, basically he shook my hand and left. All right. I started her on IV glucocorticoids, prednisone, one milligram per kilogram to wean her off in 12 weeks. Then I called an immunologist and said, let's do this and go through the whole differential. So we got rid of all the, the you know, SLE. We got rid of all the systemic diagnoses. We got rid of the other types of diagnoses. And what happened was in two weeks, she left the hospital with no headache on glucocorticoids and cyclophosphamide. She was headache-free. She then became lost to follow-up. She never called me back. She never called the immunologist back, okay? I never did speak to the medical director of her insurance company. So here's an example of a patient in which a catch-22 actually helped her because if I could have done the CAT scan, we might have gotten an inappropriate diagnosis. So I want to talk about two other patients very quickly. First was a... Yes, as I said, MRA. Now we can do an MR angiography, okay? And it is good. I'm sorry? It wouldn't. It wouldn't because with multiple sclerosis you have, if you do an MRI that's not an MRA, if you do an MRI, you're going to see plaques, white plaques, hypodensities, okay, amongst the white matter. Okay, very different. And so if you did this, you'll see blobs essentially cutting off the blood vessels. You're not going to see beating like you did here. Okay, very different. If MRAs existed then, okay, that... Today, I would first do an MRA. If that didn't give me enough of a diagnosis, I don't have a problem going to do a cerebral angiogram. The issue is I'm not an interventional radiologist, and it's finding one that will agree to do it. It's not difficult in, if you're in an uh, academic setting, but you, you take your chances. Okay? It's a good question, though. Thank you. I guess my point is, if you, if you had that patient today and you did an MRA, mm -hmm. might the vasculitis not be diagnosed? Yes. I think the vasculitis would be diagnosed. Yes. Because then you'd go to a cerebral angiogram? Correct. Okay. Correct. 
Because that's so different from what we see with a CAT scan, or what we used to see with a CAT scan, which was just hypodensity. And that was with the first generation and second generation CAT scan. And as you know, they've gotten a hell of a lot better now. Okay, so let me just talk to you about, very quickly, two other vasculitis patients I've seen. One was a 43-year-old right-handed Caucasian male, status post a left-sided CVA. He had a stroke, not a TIA. He had a minimal facial rash, a butterfly rash. Okay. So obviously we wanted to work up lupus. Indeed, he had lupus by diagnosis. But he had waited so long to come to the hospital. The only reason he came to the hospital was the stroke. I saw him as a neurological consultation. The bottom line was he died two weeks later. Then there was another patient, a 38-year-old, left-handed Caucasian female. This patient had multiple issues. Arthritic joint pain, blood in the urine, fever, cough. She had inflammation of the ears, decreasing hearing, inflammation of the eyes, decreasing vision, okay? Weakness of lower extremities. We did an LP. It was positive for a number of cytokines, chemokines, other things, and the diagnosis of this particular patient was Wegener's granulomatosis. And as I told you before, that can be very lethal. In this patient, however, it was not. She was treated with methotrexate, prednisone, for six months, and then she was placed every six months on a MRA. And the bottom line was, after three years, I stopped seeing her. She was doing just fine. So you can help patients with vasculitis. That's the most important takeaway. That and the fact that sometimes you have to do what you have to do. Okay? Today, I'd think three times about going up to a chairman of any department and saying, you need to do this. But on the other hand, if it was a patient's life, I wouldn't think twice. So, any questions? Yes, Dr. Warwick. This is correct. My experience in, and what I've learned from neuroradiologists as well as immunologists, okay, and rheumatologists, is when they, when they see a viral or inflammatory problem causing a vasculitis or something like that, the first thing they will do is hit it with as much drug as necessary to put the patient in remission. So the first thing that they do is it's two stages. You see the patient, you identify the problem, you hit it as hard as you can until the patient goes into remission. And then you follow that patient very closely. Every six months for another MRA, every couple of months to see in the doctor's office to make sure that there are no side effects or there's nothing clinically happening that would be suspicious. That's the only way that I know of to treat these patients today. Once they're in remission, you wait. I always keep patients on the drugs for a year, okay? 
But these guys will take it off in six months as long as they're in total remission clinically. Okay, that's me. I'm just very much more conservative. But that, Dr. Warwick, that's a very good question. Any other questions? If not, I thank you very much for your time and your patience, and we're five minutes early. So, thank you. <laughs>